Southerners now draw near unto my story approach you here. Each loyal Southerner's heart to cheer with a victory gained at Shiloh. Oh, it was on my... Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. You can see them in every small town in New England, in the Midwest, and especially in the South. On the village green or in front of the courthouse, there's a Civil War soldier in stone standing guard, or perhaps a cannon and a pile of cannonballs. Who built these memorials to the Civil War? Why did they do it? What did they mean then and what do they mean now? How should we read them? Our guest today is Dr. Thomas J. Brown of the University of South Carolina, an authority on the public art of Civil War commemoration. Join us for a conversation with Tom Brown on Civil War Talk Radio. to improve fuel efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Remember when you laughed during a business conference? You felt more energized, more alert, and more receptive to the message being delivered. Hi, I'm Russ Dolnack, and I make people laugh. And as a professional humorous speaker, I open up a morning conference session with a laugh or close off the day with a funny recap. It's it's just a one-of-a-kind experience. Visit RussIsFunny.com right now. Get an audience into it. You know, if they're laughing, it's paying big dividends. They're more relaxed. They're more creative. And if nothing else, a humorous speaker leaves each and every one of them with with a smile on their face. Unique comedy. Custom, clean, clever comedy. Otherwise, the audience might just doze off. <laughs> just imagine, if you had to listen to hours of serious commentary without a break, come on, pack some upbeat energy into your next event. Humor works. Find me, Russ Dalnack, at russisfunny.com because, well, russischubby.com was taken. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Talk Radio. My name is Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from my spacious office on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but speaking only on behalf of myself and my guest speaking on behalf of himself and neither of us representing our universities or their powerful legal departments in any way whatsoever. Before we start, I'd like to thank the many listeners who have sent in donations to Civil War Talk Radio, 
This is uh, a labor of uh, love, to use the cliché on my part, something I do uh, out of interest in the subject and the wonderful opportunity it gives to talk to interesting people in the field. Uh, it is theoretically a commercial enterprise uh, on behalf of World Talk Radio, our overlords, but uh, until we begin actually selling large numbers of commercials, uh, no one's making any money. Thus, the occasional donation does provide for certain necessary uh, uh, bills that have to be paid. Among them, uh, even the purchase on the occasion, on occasion of books about Civil War, so that I can know what I'm talking about with the guests that I have on the show. And today's guest is Dr. Thomas J. Brown of the University of South Carolina. Tom, are you there? I am, Jerry. Thank you for having me on. Well, glad to have you here. I'm especially glad to have you because uh, long-time listeners will remember when we started the show a year, uh, two years ago, one of the few uh, perks, as I mentioned, it's not a commercial enterprise on, on my behalf, one of the few perks was the opportunity that I had to remind listeners that every possible, oppor- uh, every possible opportunity that I had a degree from Harvard. And having you on gives me a chance to remind listeners once again uh, that I do have a Harvard degree, as do you. I saw you earn it. Yes, yes, we were there that same day. Uh, so it's true, listeners. Uh, I'm not just making this up. And uh, it's, it's spring break here on campus, and I remember asking the students once at Harvard, the undergrads, did they mention that when they went on spring break? And one of the, the boys said sort of thoughtfully, well, you're on the beach. Sometimes you got to drop the H-bomb. Uh, you have to let the, the people you're meeting know that you go to this elite institution. I don't think it helped them meet girls, which was the whole purpose, but they thought it did. Never helped me. Didn't know. Well, but uh, but here we are anyway. Um, well, Tom, tell me, uh, tell us, uh, before Harvard, what were you interested in the Civil War uh, in this middle period of American history when you started um, professional it, study of history? Well, I grew up in um, mostly in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and um, uh, they were... Um, uh, of course, uh, have been uh, in, been in a gradual process of being absorbed into the Northeast Corridor for a very long time. But certainly, when I was young, they were a lot less absorbed than they are now. And, and Manassas was quite rural, um, and was relatively close to where we lived. Um, and so, um, you know, I, be, being uh, in front in Virginia, uh, the consciousness of the Civil War was very high. And, and being close to um, Manassas, um, uh, there was a certain Civil War atmosphere there. So this was something that that when when you started uh, decided you were going to be a historian was this the field you wanted to uh, pursue? Well, that was uh, more um, a product of uh, my mentor, our mentor, uh, David Donald. Um, I, I, I my one of the lessons I learned in uh, education was uh, that the teacher makes the subject, and um, I, I don't think I particularly set out to be a Civil War historian, but um, David Donald um, attracted me into the field. Um, and um, I'm, I'm glad. Um, I think when I uh, thought about um, becoming a historian, the period that in some ways appealed to me most was the post-war period, late 19th century, and I guess one nice thing about studying Civil War monuments is I've managed to do both. I kind of work on the war period, but the war period is kind of refracted through the um, end of the century. Well, that's interesting because a lot of people who are interested in the Civil War uh, and there are, of course, you know, millions who, who are fascinated by this period. A lot of them, their interest slams shut with finality in April 1865. Mm-hmm. 
and pursuing the story into the Reconstruction era and beyond does not interest them. But you found that uh, you were interested in that period. Well, I have to say, I, I'm not so sure that I came at it. I, uh, it's Reconstruction that um, that I started with. I mean, I became interested in um, being a professor and, and, and studying the past as much through literature as through history. And to me, uh, the era of Howells and James, Henry Adams, uh, Mark Twain, um, was the great period of, of uh, the American past in some way. Uh, so it's really through that that I, I, I think that I thought of the 1880s, 1890s. As, as, uh, I happened to be period. reading this week a uh, book of letters of Joseph Twitchell, who was uh, apparently Mark Twain's uh, close friend. I don't know if you've come across his work in, in your own study. Uh, but it's a new publication. Uh, somebody found his letters at Yale and has published them, and it's really a marvelous letter collection. He was a chaplain. Uh, with the New York Regiment during the war, and uh, it's really a good, good collection of letters. Very interesting. Well, one thing I can't appreciate. And so, I mean, there's there's an example. Of somebody, you know, he's, he's a chaplain during the war. It's, it's you know, war letters are fascinating. Uh, I, one thing I came to appreciate about this period of people that I'd been interested in when they're you know writing the things for which we remember them was how formative the war was for them. Um, and I guess in some ways that's what I, I came to study was. The, the imprint that the war left in the, the uh, imagination and, and how it's um, how that played out uh, for years and years to come. Well, it certainly played out for for most Americans in in, in literal form in these stone monuments that we see everywhere. And I know you're working on a book about uh, the, the public art of the Civil War, if I recall your your website correctly. Is this project still ongoing? I am. It, it, it is, um, and uh, it has taken um, a variety of uh, uh, detours, and uh, has produced a, a number of kind of uh, byproducts. Um, I did a, a sort of a textbook um, about memory of the Civil War. Um, that's called the Public Art of Civil War Commemoration. It's a it's a document reader type book that looks at some major themes that have been ways in which Americans have uh, remembered the war. Um, the themes it looks at are the, the common soldier, um, which it traces from the way that soldiers were perceived during the war all the way up to recent uh, debates over the Confederate flag, uh, women in the war, um, uh, Robert E. Lee, the Massachusetts 54th Regiment, and Lincoln. takes all those themes and, and kind of traces them, as I say, from the war to the present. So that's sort of a byproduct of this work. Um, another byproduct is I'm, I'm uh, editing a collection of essays on uh, scholarship on Reconstruction. Uh, the scholarship's been done in the past 20 years uh, since Eric Foner's classic synthesis of the Reconstruction era. Um, really one of the great monuments of historical literature of our time. And it raises an interesting question of where does one go from there? And we've had almost 20 years to go somewhere. And so this is a collection that looks at, well, where have we gone? And my own contribution to it is on this, this now quite large number of books about memory of the war in one way or another, um, in literature, in art, in organizations like the Grand Army of the Republic or the United Daughters of the Confederacy, or in ceremonies like Memorial Day, in military cemeteries or whatnot. Well, um, so, yeah, that's another uh, sort of detour. Um, but the major project is uh, a book about Civil War monuments. Now, where did these monuments come from? Uh, you, you've, I was looking uh, at your essay uh, in the volume Hope and Glory uh, of dealing with, with monuments, Civil War-era monuments, and you discuss the way Boston chose to commemorate the Civil War. These things didn't just show up one day. 
Yeah, definitely not. Who put them there and why? Well, um, I guess the first uh, point to make is it's a, uh, high, there are a couple different processes at work, or a lot of different processes at work, but some of them can be put in big categories. Um, I have focused on um, what I like to call civic monuments of the Civil War, uh, monuments that are in towns or in cemeteries. Uh, I, I distinguish these from um, battlefield parks, um, which in some cases, like uh, Vicksburg, for example, uh, or Gettysburg, turned out to be very heavily monumented, um, tremendous um, concentrations of, of monumentation at those places, in a somewhat specialized environment where monuments served somewhat specialized illustrative purposes, and that emerged through a, a highly particular process of how battlefield parks came to be in the 1890s and, and then how they came to take the shape that they would come to take over the next decades. Um, I'm interested in that, that that has some relationship to what happens in cities and towns, but I'm interested in what happens in, in cities and towns for the most part. And, um, and the first the, part of the answer to your question, um, then, you know, where these come from, is um, when you start talking about cities and towns, it, it is a highly decentralized process. Um, virtually every project is, is independent. Um, this is not um, in comparison to, let's say, the kinds of monuments that are put up in France after World War One, um, which is a tremendous number of monuments. Uh, World War One in France, the French national government played uh, a part, um, not necessarily a controlling part, but a part in, in pretty much all those monuments. Um, nothing like that in the United States. You have individual communities, individual organizations, uh, competing organizations, competing entrepreneurs, individual people um, who are the sources of these monuments. And so it, it becomes a complicated thing to study. You're talking about uh, a few thousand monuments, uh, each one that, to a certain extent, has its own story. But within that, that diversity of, of origins, there, there are some, certainly some commonalities to to the purposes of the people who put these up. Absolutely, there are some there are some big um, there are some big patterns. Um, uh, some of which are are regional, some of which are changes over time. I mean, it's the story the story of the monuments is. The story that begins during the war, uh, monuments start going up in uh, New England in the um, in 1863 in Connecticut and Massachusetts, and I, I take the story up to World War One basically. This kind of ends with the subject of how 50 years of remembering the Civil War affects remembrance of World War One and, and how experience in remembrance of World War One affects the way people look back at the Civil War. But your your essay uh, in again in the volume Hope and Glory. You have an illustration of the, the Sphinx in Mount Auburn Cemetery mm -hmm. that was put up as a very early Civil War monument, a very early post-war monument. That's a weird monument. <laughs> it is a weird monument. It's a fascinating one. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a good example of, of how these things could become so particular they are individual. Uh, Mount Auburn, which is one of the most remarkable um, symbolic landscapes in the country in the mid-19th century, um, uh, occupied, uh, I think, a, an influence in the shaping of the American landscape that is is um, just incredible. Had a huge impact on the rise of parks and emergence of something like Central Park, and um, fundamentally changed ideas about cemeteries and whatnot. Um, Becomes one of the, fir the first, really, of the sort of monumented landscapes in the country. Uh, a lot of it was um, in the early phases of Mount Auburn, the division of, of Jacob Bigelow, uh, Bigelow. Uh, single-handedly uh, commissioned the Mount Auburn Sphinx, and he's the one who said it's going to be a Sphinx.
Um, I mean, there's your extreme case of a monument as, you know, a vision of a particular an individual person. In his case, the the point he wanted to make about the Sphinx was um, had to do with sort of the, the maturation of American civilization. Uh, uh, in the early, some of these, especially the the more ambitious early monuments you see in Boston, a place that that already by the Civil War had a fairly mature monument culture, things like Bunker Hill Monument, you know, already 20 years old. Um, the point that, that Bigelow wanted to make and some other people wanted to make in their Boston monuments was um, the United States had, had, through this experience, become one of the great world civilizations. It was a place that was um, now a place that could be talked It had an epic experience, you know, like uh, ancient Greece or Rome or, or Egypt. And, and, and so they evoked these places in, um, in some of these early monuments. Um, uh, it's the uh, like, Memorial uh, Hall at Harvard is a very similar kind of thing. Well, uh, staying with the things for a moment, uh, the for listeners who want to get a, a quick grasp on Mount Auburn Cemetery, if you haven't already read Gary Will's uh, Lincoln at Gettysburg, uh, his chapter on, on Mount Auburn and the meaning of memorial places like that, I think is worth the price of admission. Absolutely. Now, the... So the idea of the Sphinx is, is to put the United States in a class with these ancient civilizations. Uh, and, and Boston within the United States certainly is, is one of the older and more established communities, and so that might make sense in that context. And and, and, it's, and, it's, and a community with um, a highly developed um, kind of sense of memory. Um, it, it's remarkable um, how much Massachusetts in particular took the lead in, in building Civil War monuments. Um, it, it was 1880 before there were as many monuments um, around the rest of the country combined as there were in Massachusetts. Um, you've got monuments going up rapidly in Massachusetts, um, and uh, it, some of them uh, quite modest in, in towns, uh, some of them quite ambitious um, from very early, as I say, from the middle of the war on. Um, and the, the rest of the country, I mean, and, and Connecticut also is, is uh, early, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, but, but nowhere near as, as extreme as Massachusetts, and a lot of that has to do with um, some of that has to do with the intensity of sexual politics. Of course, the, uh, Massachusetts is a, a state that had a huge ideological investment in the war, uh, but a lot of it has to do with the intensity of the commemorative culture. Um, this idea that uh, there were public monuments um, and, and that they were an important part of of the culture uh, was something that was well established already there. A lot of it also has to do with um, the town system. Um, it's, you know, there are, I forget how many towns there are in, in Massachusetts, um, but hundreds. And it, it quickly came to be seen as that something that a town does. A, a, a town has a Civil War monument. Well, let me ask you about that. When, when uh, you and I were at Harvard, there I mentioned it again, uh, when we were there, I lived in Franklin, Massachusetts, which mm-hmm. was a sort of classic uh, rural town, maybe 20, 30 miles outside of Boston, the nearest place where the cost of living was manageable for me at the time. <laughs> and they, there was on the town green, uh, besides the white frame church that you would expect uh, nearby, there was the Civil War monument, a soldier uh, on a pedestal, on an obelisk at the top. And I remember being fascinated by that monument because it had inscribed on the four sides Gettysburg, Vicksburg, I think uh, Chickamauga, Maybe Shiloh was the other one. And what fascinated me about it was how completely generic the monument was because there weren't any Massachusetts troops at Shiloh. 
mm-hmm. or at Chickamauga or at Vicksburg, uh, as far as I can recall. There mm-hmm. may have been some, but certainly not not at most of the Western battles. Mm-hmm. And it gave the appearance that this had been ordered from a catalog of Civil War monuments suitable for any town green anywhere in the North. And it had nothing really specific to do with Franklin, Massachusetts, but every town must have one. Mm-hmm. Is that where they got these from? Uh, well, again, there's a 50-year story. Um, by the, um, and I, I don't remember Franklin off the top of my head, and, and, and don't I have sort of an extensive database which I, I don't have in my fingertips, um, and I don't remember when Franklin's goes up, but but certainly uh, in the latter stages of the story, there are catalogs of Civil War uh, monuments from which communities order these things, and um, you have people uh, selling them on a commission basis. Um, and um, you know there is this, this kind of mass uh, marketing element to it that, that people found. Um, in some ways intriguing, in some ways disturbing. Um, the place names sometimes uh, early on, though, uh, were much more specifically focused on where the soldiers from this community had served. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently not the case of Franklin, but no. th- that is true in some places. That, uh, the, the place names chosen to be depicted on the uh, inscriptions were places where that community soldiers had gone. Uh, I, I find it interesting that place names are so frequently inscribed even when um, um, when it's not sort of a substitute for having individual names um, or a supplement to having individual names. There is this um, uh, resonance of place and memory that the monument is all about, for one thing. I mean, the monument is supposed to be this place that, that makes memory concrete. Um, but also in, in, in this kind of, you know, incantation of magical places, you know, Vicksburg, Gettysburg, Shiloh, um, there is a, a attempt to call up memory. Each of them means something, certainly. Have, do you see the same thing in the Midwest as in New England? Are there regional variations as you go west across the country, across the north? Um, if you go west without going south, the major variation is that um, communities get into it later. Um, now, they come into it very energetically, and there are tremendous numbers of Civil War monuments in Iowa and Michigan. Uh, and what when you say later, like eighteen nineties, eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, yeah. Okay. Now there, I mean there, which is not to say there aren't some early ones in the Midwest, including Iowa and Michigan. I mean here and there, you used to find some early ones. Detroit was one of the first really large cities to to go in for a very ambitious one. Um, so I mean you, you can find um, exam, early examples from Midwest, but in terms of substantial numbers, um, you know the Midwest comes into it considerably later than than New England. I recall I, I grew up in Detroit, and on Belle Isle, the Detroit's version of Central Park, there's a very nice equestrian statue of uh, Detroit's most famous soldier during the war, and nobody in Detroit has any idea who he is today. Mm-hmm. Um, listeners to this show will recall uh, that the temporary commander of the 12th Corps at Gettysburg was Alpheus Williams, mm-hmm. and he's the one on the statue by the casino on Belle Isle. But uh, but he's completely forgotten today. Uh, That's a statue of that um, again, um, off the top of my head, um, I don't know the exact date, but in the neighborhood of 1915. Um, that's a statue that uh, it fits into the story of um, the spread of equestrian statues, which is one of my topics here. Um, I mean, equestrian statues have this grand Western tradition. Um, we're talking kind of in the same sort of terms we were talking about the Sphinx and Jacob Bigelow's idea that you know the United States is a place that um, is now in this kind of world stature. Um, equestrian monuments um, had, 
had a certain currency in that kind of thing that, that dated uh, you know, back to antiquity, of course. And um, they'd had a real tension in the United States, uh, as, as, as people may know. Um, there was a great deal of debate about whether there should be um, a question statue of George Washington. The question statue in the Roman Empire had been a sign of empire, and there are equestrian monuments to the emperor scattered around the, the empire, um, only one of which survives. Um, and in um, it, as, as Britain um, begins to think of itself as the new Roman Empire after the Seven Years' War, um, there's an equestrian statue of the king placed in New York City. Uh, and that's that's uh, turned over and, and melted for ammunition um, right after the reading of the Declaration of Independence in New York. Um, and there are very few equestrian statues in the United States again until the Civil War. There are only a, a handful put up in the 1850s, Jackson, Washington. Uh, considerable tension about what the equestrian statue means in the United States. Um, after, uh, because it's got this, this resonance of, of empire. Well, the um, man on horseback is, is a phrase for a, you know, a strong, unconstitutional leader who takes over uh, in, in, in revolutionary times. And that's a phrase that, that only really becomes kind of a, a common term in the 1880s, uh, 1890s. Um, Just when it, this debate is going on. Yeah, exactly, and when these monuments are, are being put up. Hmm. Um, so anyhow, uh, the, the Alpheus Williams Monument in Detroit is, is part of uh, this, this body of equestrian and other statues of commanders that are one of my topics. I mean, the kinds of topics I'm interested in in this book are things like um, okay, how do um, monuments to Civil War commanders show ideas about um, democracy and leadership? And to what extent are um, are these monuments about the ways in which um, democratic ideas of government uh, play out even in the hierarchical setting of the army? Or conversely, uh, ways in which uh, kind of military discipline um, are being prescribed for... Um, the organization of civilian society. Now, it's interesting. One question, though, that I know the listeners are, are having in the back of their minds when the subject of equestrian statues comes up is always that of the, the symbolism of the, <laughs> the horse's legs. Yeah, uh, that, that, that always comes up. What, what's, the, what's the legend and what's the story? Well, I'd love to. Uh, I, I, I wish I knew a little bit more, but I do know. I, I, I wish I knew more, but I do know a little bit. Uh, the legend, and, and uh, as I said, I grew up in um, Washington, D.C. area, and um, I get into this whole thing partly by having seen lots and lots of monuments when I was young. And certainly the legend I grew up with and, and that people always, you know, uh, tell me about has to do with um, how many legs the statue has up in the air and uh, what was the fate of the commander. And I guess the legend is that if the, um, the, the horse has two legs up in the air, this person uh, died in action. Uh, one uh, leg of the horse up in the air, I think, is often translated as, as wounded or, or even mortally wounded, and, and, and four hooves on the ground is, uh, came home safe and sound. Um, now, anybody who's seen any appreciable number of things knows, knows this isn't true. Um, there are monuments of Lee that have uh, all four hooves on the ground. There are monuments of Lee that have two hooves up in the air. Um, there are monuments of, of Grant of different kinds. Um, this, there, there is, there's no connection of this to um, historical reality. It's not, not at all something that um, sculptors followed or that um, sponsors. And one of the interesting things in all this is the ways in which sponsors and sculptors, you know, negotiated. A sculptor couldn't just do what he wanted. Um, the, the sponsor would, would have some say here. It was not something that sponsors tried to pressure sculptors to do either. 
um, in the National Archives, there is um, an, a, a file of letters that people have written to the United States government asking to have this thing decoded. And say, and people write in and say, well, what, you know, I understand there's some kind of code here. What's the code? Can you explain it to me? Um, and that's really all I, I know about it that is, is probably unusual is having read that file. And what I can report to you from having read that file is that the first letter in it um, comes from the early 1920s. Um, and the uh, it came, I think, to the War Department. Uh, and anyhow, the, whoever in the United States government got it, they sent it to Laredo Taft um, at the University of Illinois, who was exactly the right person to send it to. Um, Laredo Taft was um, one of the best-known sculptors in the country, and, and more important, he was the best-known histor- historian of American sculpture at that time, and it had written a, a long uh, survey history of American sculpture. And Taft, in the 1920s, says, I never heard of such a thing, which leads me to think that it, at least at the time of that letter, um, this whole uh, code was much less of an urban legend than it is now. And yet it does still have currency. It, 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 has it still has tremendous currency. Billy Collins, the uh, poet, um, had, a po- had a poem in The New Yorker within the past year that is um, kind of a riff on, on this basic idea. Huh. Well, normally during the show we, we hear some background music and take a break, and not hearing it today... Um, We'll pretend we hear it, uh, pretend we're taking a break, and come back in about 10 seconds. So for the engineer's benefit, we'll imagine we're hearing music and say, listeners, we're taking a short break on Civil War Talk Radio. We'll be back with Tom Brown to discuss more of the public art of Civil War commemoration in just a minute. 